Our Father in heaven, we are so conscious these days that we live in a dark world. Uh, we think of some of our own members who are living, uh, having to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we think of um, friends of Crescent who are in terrible distress and uh, facing the gravest of circumstances. We think particularly of Lindsay Proudfoot and his dear wife, Jenny. And we commit him to you, Father, and pray that his faith will hold and that he will be triumphant uh, as he faces the final enemy. We pray that you would give him uh, an acute awareness that the Lord is at his side, that he would know peace in his soul, and that the um, comfort that he has received over a lifetime from your word would be ever more precious to him uh, as he faces his final days. And Father, we pray for um, Diane McCormick. We think particularly of her father and uh, we are aware there, Lord, that the, the situation is grave. And so we pray that you would comfort Diane and uh, strengthen her faith too. Our Father, we're conscious that we live in a dark world. Uh, we think of so much turmoil and confusion and bitterness and anger in the world. And we think particularly of the United States and we think of its strategic role in maintaining a stable world. And so we pray, Lord, in your goodness that you would stabilize that country and uh, we pray for the incoming administration that they would be wise and uh, generous and uh, not sectarian in the agenda that they pursue and we pray for your people lord um, that they wouldn't become seduced by worshiping some political religious idol that they would not do things in the name of god that would profane your name and so we pray particularly for the United States and particularly for your people that they would appreciate uh, in these terror uh, difficult times that their primary loyalty is to you and that their citizenship is in heaven. But we thank you, Father, that uh, your people have come through dark times in the past. And we're so grateful for this little book of Habakkuk. We thank you for um, your servant and thank you for his honesty and thank you for the record that we have of his struggle uh, to understand how to hold on to faith uh, when the world around him was dark. So we pray for David as he leads uh, our study uh, and we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So David, I'm going to hand over to you uh, to lead us through our study in the book of Habakkuk. Good evening, everybody, and thank you again for joining with us this evening. And this evening, we're continuing in the second part of our study in the little book of Habakkuk. After I was finished my breakfast this morning, I was sitting in our front lounge, and I was looking out the window having a cup of tea, when I noticed uh, two cyclists came up the street outside our house. It was obviously a father and a daughter a very young daughter, probably five, six years old, on her little bike. Dad was fully geared in all the gear that a proficient cyclist would have, the helmet, a very elaborate bike, the, the gear. 
And the little girl who was behind him was had her little red helmet on and her anorak and her little red bike. What struck me as I watched was that Dad was cruising along, gaining speed and making significant headway and leaving the little girl behind. And the little girl's little legs were going pell-mell as she was trying to keep up as her father gradually, inadvertently, and unaware of what was happening behind him, pulled further and further away. She was going as hard as she could go. Her little legs were going as hard as they could push. And yet her father didn't seem to be there. He seemed to be away. And it got me thinking sometimes, and that's very much an illustration of where we are. Sometimes we really are going as hard as we can go. And yet we're looking out and we're saying, God, where are you? Are you there? Are you pulling away from me? Are you near? And so this evening, as we look at this little book of Habakkuk, I just want to try to address that question in the the time in which we live, the difficult time in which we live. God, are you there? Just to remind you uh, from last week, very briefly, that Habakkuk was perplexed by sin, injustice, and violence. We saw that in the first chapter. He asked and cried out, God, how long will I cry out to you, and why will you not listen? And he listed a number of issues, a number of complaints that was happening in his land, that God's law had been neglected, violence was on the increase, theft and plundering everywhere, contention and no evidence of justice. God, why will you not listen? And then we are reminded that God responded to him. He responded and he said, Look out among the nations and watch. Lift your eyes up and look out. Things are happening in the world that you are not even aware of. Not only that you're not even aware of, but that you're better than your mercy, not knowing how I move in my mercy, knowing how I move among the nations. Because I'm raising the Chaldeans, a bitter nation who are going to march through the breadth of the earth. And Habakkuk says, but the Chaldeans or the Babylonians? They're idolaters. They're full of pride. They treat animals like, they treat humans like like animals. They're wicked. And he even uses a picture of them like a fisherman casting his net into the sea and just pulling in, hauling in scores of fish dead. Why have you appointed them for judgment? Is Habakkuk's second complaint. And God says, I will answer But we finished last week with this little verse. I will climb up onto my watchtower and stand at my guard post, and there I will wait. I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. And we took from there, we moved on into the New Testament, and we looked at the picture of Simeon waiting, watching, waiting for the incarnation. And we wait today for the second coming of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We're very used to waiting. Who ever thought we would be waiting so much? Standing outside a shop, waiting to go in. I stood one day in front of the chemist for well over an hour to go in and lift a prescription. We've all had experience like that. 
Waiting seems to be almost a, a futile thing, a waste of time. I am the worst person when it comes to waiting. My wife will tell you that my patience is wafer thin. I will go in and try to get out of a place as quickly as possible. And so waiting was not part of my personality. But in this little talk, God encourages us to wait. And that is what I want to focus on. Because attention exists as we look at these verses. And verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. And I take from this that it was to be large enough and permanent enough that if somebody was running past, they would be able to read it. Make it absolutely clear. Make it something that is going to be permanent. Make it something that nobody can miss. And then verse 3, he starts to focus on timing. He says, for still the vision waits or awaits. It awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. It seems slow, but wait. It will surely come. It will not delay. And so therefore, here in these first verses, in verse number three and verse number one, we have this tension by waiting and God's timing. Because what we consider to be an emergency in our eyes is not necessarily one in his eyes. You see, God works to a completely different time scale to you or me. God's answer may not be immediate. As one says, living faith is an entrusting of ourselves into God's hands as God speaks and acts in all circumstances of our lives, trusting our God who is already at work. This is not like waiting idly in a queue, wasting time. Whenever you go into the New to the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, you see people waiting, but they're actively waiting. They're depending, they're learning, they're actually benefiting from the waiting experience. I don't know what you're waiting for. Maybe you're waiting as a young person to know who your partner is going to be in life. Maybe you're waiting for exam results. Maybe you're waiting for medical results. I don't know. But God says, look, your timing and my timing are not necessarily the same. So wait. And then, whenever we look at this prophecy that we're going to look at, this poetic prophecy, the immediate application was to end the Babylonian captivity. Whenever you look at prophecy at times, as somebody has said before, it's like a range of mountains. You see one mountain, but you don't know how far the valley is between it and the next mountain, and the next mountain. And so as we look into this passage, we're looking actually at a range of mountains. And what the immediate application is, that it is for the Babylonian captivity. Habakkuk is speaking and saying to the people, this is what's going to happen. 586 was the third and final captivity led by the Babylonians when they overthrew Jerusalem. There had been some prior activity leading to, for example, Daniel being taken into captivity. But the final battle, the final captivity, was 586 BC. And there, God is speaking into that environment, talking about what is going to happen in Babylon. But he says, wait. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not 
delaying. It's interesting, whenever you look at this little book of Habakkuk, the number of times it's quoted in the New Testament. And the writer to the Hebrews picks up this verse, it will surely come, it will not delay. That was referring specifically initially to the Babylonian captivity, but he takes it and enlarges upon it. He says, he changes the word it to he, and he says, for yet a little while, and he shall come, and he will not tarry. And so therefore, what we have here is not only a, an immediate application to the Babylonian captivity, but we also have an application which is leading us to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A discouraged Babylonian Jew might ask, where is our deliverer? Where are you? Where are you going to come? What's going to happen? And Habakkuk's answer to him is quite straightforward. He is coming, but wait for him. And in the New Testament, we read that Peter talks about some who scoffed and asked, where is the promise of his coming? And God's reply in, in Peter's letter, Second Peter, is, wait, and he will surely come. And so therefore, while we expect things to happen immediately, while we would like things to happen immediately, God is saying what you're going through at this moment in time, I want you to wait. There's a lesson in waiting. You will benefit from waiting. And as you wait, you will learn. We have in our house this vase. It's about 12, 15 inches high. It was given to me by a woman, a Japanese lady, who I hold very dear to my heart. We were leaving Japan at the time, and as we were leaving, she said, I want you to take this vase home with you. And all I could think is, how on earth am I going to get that home from Japan to Northern Ireland without breaking it. We wrapped it in our cabin luggage, we carried it, and we carried it carefully. And every time I look at this, I think of that lady, Machiko-san. But this amazing little vase is made up of pieces of bamboo which are woven on the surface. There are two colors. You can see the intricate weaving. Those are actually little strands of bamboo. And as you look at those strands of bamboo, you can see the weave. And at times you can see the golden color of the bamboo. And at other times you can see the black of the bamboo. And whenever you look at Habakkuk chapter 2, what you see running through it is just like a weave. At times you see the blackness, the darkness, and at times you see the gold. And the two strands which are running through it is that God is a just God and that God is a faithful God. And as a just God, God declares the five woes. He poetically sings out a song, a song in which he challenges the Babylonians and who they are. And the five woes are greed, which is, when he says, he, he piles up, the Babylonians pile up stolen goods. But God says, you know, the things that they piled up, they've called them wealth they'll pass away and then he says what about your pride he says who builds a realm just unjustly in other words using slave labor and unjust means the Babylonians had captured the people and built up a nation unjustly and it's interesting whenever you look at the, the terminology that is used to bring down that woe upon the people it talks about a wall and, and wood and I'm reminded as I read that, 
of that story that we read of the, the Babylonian king having a feast and a handwriting on the wall declaring that his realm would end. The very stones, the very wood spoke out against him. They were ruthless. God says, if you build a city with bloodshed, I will turn it to ashes. I will destroy it. The Babylonians were ruthless. They held nobody in any sacred way. Life was meaningless to them. They just butchered and they killed. But God says, you work like that, I will turn you to ashes. And then we have debauchery, and it's described as drunkenness and lust. And you find there that the people are engaged in what we would call today behavior, which is as a result of drunkenness. And then God uses that image, and he says, come and drink and be exposed. Just like a drunk person who is out of control, out of their mind, is completely and totally exposed for who they are. Uh, God says, that is what's going to happen to you Babylonians. And the final woe is idolatry. And God says to them, who can say to wood, come to life? And God says to them, an image cannot help them. Their false gods will be of no help at that time of judgment. And so these five woes, these five challenges that go out to the Babylonians or it's God speaking as a just God. He knew what the sins of the Babylonians were, and he knew that he would deal with them in due time. You see, God hates the sins of pride and greed, of selfishness, of murder, of drunkenness, lust, and idolatry, and he said they would not go unpunished. In other words, God would intervene, and God would deal. But remember I said to you that this uh, little prophecy not only applied to the Babylonians as it came, but if you go back into the book of the New Testament and look at the book of Revelation, you have Babylon. And there you have Babylon being totally destroyed. And you see here reflected in the Babylon that is destroyed at the second coming of Christ, these sins, and they're the sin of our world today. And it's the world in which we live today and God says, yeah, you can see violence, you can see hatred, you see selfishness, you see murder, you see idolatry, you see man completely ignoring me, but I will deal with them. There is a time coming when I will ensure that the matter is dealt with. And so that is, if you like, the black strands running through this. But we have a faithful God. The first strand that we see, those golden strands coming through and right through this little chapter is God's grace. And then we see God's glory. And then we see God's government. So when we ask the question, are you there? We see God's grace. And in verse four, we have this little verse. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This little verse, as repeated in the New Testament on three occasions, it takes three books to develop, and much of the New Testament develops it. And it is a verse that, if you like, Martin Luther came to 
in his search for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul develops it in Galatians and develops it again in Romans and is developed in Hebrews. And yet, whenever we look at this today, we, we look at it and it causes people great difficulty as they try to interpret what did Habakkuk mean by the righteous shall live by his faith. Obviously, Habakkuk didn't understand justification by faith as preached by Paul 600 years plus later. He didn't understand what was going to be written by the author of the Hebrews. So what did Habakkuk understand by righteousness shall live by faith? It wasn't the first time in the whole of the Bible that we hear this phrase. It comes in a slightly different form. But in Genesis chapter 15, whenever God said to Abraham that if he believed in him, his children would count and number the stars in heaven. And because he believed in him, it was counted to him for righteousness. God says, look, Abraham, do you believe me? You and Sarah have no children, but I am telling you now that you will have a nation. You will have an offspring, and they will count, and they will be the number of the stars. And Abraham believed him. And because he believed him, then it was counted to him for righteousness. It wasn't because of what Abram had done. It wasn't because of what, who Abram was, but it was simply Abram's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in God, I should say, rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Abram believed in God. And this is what Paul picks up in Romans when he says, it just shall live by faith. That's what he talks about when he picks it up in Galatians. When he picks it up again in Hebrew, when the writer of the Hebrews picks it up again. You see, that is why we come to God. We come in a firm reliance to God, on a firm, faithful trust in him that you will live. You see, the Jews believed that the just shall live by faithfulness. They said that the 600-odd uh, laws which have come from Moses could be reduced to this one law. They just shall live by faithfulness. And they believed that by keeping God's law and by trying to ascertain what God's law meant for them and how it impacted upon their lives, by their faithfulness that they would live. But God says, no, believe in me, trust in me, come to me through my son, and I will count to you for righteousness, and I will give you life. And in the midst of all of this, he's saying, see my grace. And then he says, you'll see my, my glory. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The glory of the Lord. Whenever we go to Exodus, we see the glory of the Lord. It was like a devouring fire on top of a mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. That's how God appeared to them. And this isn't a call to worship the glory of God. This is a call of a thunderous call of an outraged God against a world that has mocked him. This is the God who came to dwell in the tabernacle. This is the God who came to dwell in the holiest of holies in the temple. This is the God that was inapproachable. This is the God who is full of glory. 
and his glory will fill the whole earth. And not only will his glory fill the whole earth, but the earth will hear and see and recognize the appearance of the devouring fire of an outraged God. And you can immediately see that God was speaking into the situation that the Judean people were facing in Babylon. But it also applies to us today. There is a day coming when the appearance of God will be like a devouring fire, when an outraged God will speak into this world and no longer into a world that, and into a world that has completely rejected him, him and mocked him. And he will speak loud. And that is what Habakkuk is saying. And then he's saying, God, are you there? And in the last verse of the chapter, it says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is on his throne. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Whenever we read about silence before God, we read of judgment. This isn't the silence of worship. This is the silence of whenever you're in the court of law and your judge is coming into the room and you're commanded to be silent, be quiet, be silent. The judge is present. You dare not speak up. And you not speak up unless you're addressed by the court. And you're to be silent in the presence of the Lord, as Zephaniah says in another of the minor prophets. Be silent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. This is not a call to worship, but this is a call to the earth to submit and wait in silence for his coming judgment. And so we come back to where we started. The vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end of time it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries. Wait for it. Wait for it. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The just shall live by faith. Those who are righteous will live by faith in the God in whom they trust. He has spoken grace. He will come in glory, and he will come to judge. There is a day coming when this whole world will no longer be the world that we have today. It will be a new world. It will be a new jurisdiction. It will be a new government. And what about the little girl on the bicycle? I saw them coming home. Our house is on a very slight incline. But this time, Dad wasn't away up at the front, going forward and leaving her behind. Dad was on his bike beside her. His hand was upon her shoulder, and he was pushing her. And you could almost see him saying, keep going, we're nearly there. And so therefore, God has not abandoned us. God has not left us. He says, trust me, have faith in me, that while we are in a difficult time, and you as a nation, Judah, are going to face difficult times, wait, I am coming, he is coming, and he will bring us again. 
back home. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come into your presence and we thank you again for this time we've had. We thank you for this promise that we have, that he will come again. We live in a world that is rapidly decaying. As Jim mentioned in his prayer at the start, we see political crisis across the globe. We see a pandemic that is striking every house and home, and its effects are manifested in so many ways. We see a land which is declining. And our Father, yet as we look around, it would sometimes be appropriate for us to ask the question, are you there? Have you gone ahead, God, and left us behind? But no, we are assured that if with faith, trust in him. Give him the position that he owns. Trust in him. And he, in the future, will rule in glory. His government will be perfect. And everything will be restored. Father, we thank you for this little book, the book of Habakkuk, and for the relevant message that it has for each of us today. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.